trying to be responsive because that's the kind of kind of operation we've got going here. <laughs> All right, so tonight going to give the talk then the meditation. So there's a kind of unusual small group of suttas where the Buddha talks about what's called itipati uh, hariyam, which means the powers of the mind. And he describes them in these suttas in the exact same language. With a developed, powerful mind, one can become different things or different beings, appear and vanish, move unimpeded through mountains like moving through space. One can dive in and out of the earth as if it were water and walk on water as if dry land. While sitting, one can fly through the air like a winged bird touching the sun or moon. One hears both the divine and human this is in a bunch of suttas, Kavata and the Sangharava. And then there's, in another sutta, he says, if you have the developed powerful mind, you could turn a pile of wood into water or fire or wind. So when we hear this kind of uh, language, it's easy to interpret it uh, in two possible ways. We could be very fundamentalist, about it all and take it literally. All, you know, if you're religious and you're fundamentalist, you take everything that's written as if it's an accurate description. So you literally would believe that the Buddha is talking about moving through mountains, uh, diving in, in and out of the earth as if it were water, walking on water, uh, flying through the air while sitting. So that's, that's a literalist interpretation. I am not a literalist. But then if one was going to be entirely secular, one could simply write this off as a metaphoric, poetic, figurative description of what was, uh, what might be, you know, the, trying to just capture how uh, powerful the mind can be. But there's another possibility, which is that the Buddha here is describing his experiences in meditation. Not saying that they literally happen, but that this is what he experienced. That in meditation, one can achieve countless, playful, imaginative, uh, almost at sometimes what one might refer to as uh, psychedelic in some ways, experiences. So the Buddha, I'd like to talk about how we can, why this is important, one, and how we too can accomplish this kind of freedom in our meditation. Why it's also important to have a meditation that is liberated and open and creative and playful and imaginative and not a kind of drudgery of simply observing one's breathing or one's inner experience. Certainly, the Buddha called for both. He had mindfulness and uh, 
concentration meditations that were simply called for one to observe the arising and passing of the breath, the arising and passing of feelings, body sensations, and that plays a role. That's how we can calm the mind. But that's not the be-end and end-all of what a spiritual practice can offer. Now, in the suttas where the Buddha talks about these wondrous powers of the mind, he also says it's developed by a special kind of consciousness called vinyana anida dasam, dasana, das, anida, vinyana anidasanam, vinyana anidasanam. Boy, I'm going to cut that out. He said confidently, vinyana anidasanam, which means a mind and awareness that's unconditioned, unlimited, with ba- without any boundaries. So where have we heard of this before? The state of boundaryless, unlimited, uh, non-dual, completely connected state of being. Earliest human experience after birth, the connection between the mother and the infant, develops a state that's called jointedness. And jointedness is a state where the infant and the mother essentially have three complete experiences. There's the mother's experience, the baby's experience, and then there's the symbiotic union between the two when they're deeply connected, where there's no longer any separation of personality. And the baby experiences the connection with the mother as this profoundly safe, profoundly limitless, profoundly like a, a, a state of consciousness that now as adults we can only guess at because we are so removed from it now from our experience. It's a, it's a kind of feeling where there's no, um, when the baby and the mother join together, there's no sense of me and not me, no sense of inside or out, no sense of where the baby's body ends and the mother begins. It just feels like this continuum of sensual connection. And this is, as Freud said, the sort of origination state where we experience ourself as being utterly without boundaries. And interestingly enough, Freud in Civilization and His Discontent said that all spiritual endeavor was the attempt to recreate that early experience of connection, boundaryless, lack of limitation, lack of separation, lack of inside or out. So what happens, of course, is the mother has to, over time, do what's called optimal, hopefully frustrating, the baby, which means the mother eventually gets a life. The mother gradually responds to the baby's cries uh, for attention with a little, a li- takes a little bit longer each time, over time. The mother becomes, at times, unavailable. And so the infant begins to develop more clearly the inside 
This is where my feelings are that other people can't see. I'm stuck now without my mother with these feelings of loneliness, sadness, vulnerability. And then there's the objective world of other people, the mother, the father, other people out there who do what they want and no longer necessarily comply to my wishes. They don't come whenever I call them. So the baby goes from this experience of perfect or let's, let's just call it profound union, jointedness, where it feels uh, the possibility an incredibly safe, invulnerable, symbiotic union where nothing, where it feels invulnerable to the state where suddenly it's got an inside and an outside. It's got feelings that nobody else will ever know or see completely, and it's got that outside world of people who are doing things that often cause woundings and disappointments and frustrations. So the child is, at this moment, going from a state of wondrous safety to having two completely vulnerable realms within which it must exist the inner realm of all those emotions and feelings and needs, very many of them are not being met, and the outside world where people sometimes respond and sometimes don't, sometimes are there for us, sometimes ignore us, sometimes care, sometimes abandon us. So what does the infant do? It creates, at first, it may use transitional objects to have a safe bridge between the inner realm and the outer realm of other people, the baby uses security blankets, a thumb, a toy, something that it will carry around. It's the first object that the baby has that on one level it knows is not part of its body, but at the same time allows the baby to essentially have a safe third transitional realm where it's not at the whims of all of its feelings that are internal. It's not at the whims of all the adults. It's in this magical fantasy realm where it's got this object that it can project its needs onto. And the baby treats the security blanket like the perfect mother that's always there. The transitional object becomes a representation for the mother that is no longer always available. So eventually what happens is the baby then develops what's called transitional spaces, which are times when the, ba when the infant can play with its toys. And it goes into this realm where it's projecting its fantasies, its imaginations, its unconscious needs, fears, emotions onto the toys in front of it. And if you've ever seen babies, it's not the kind of antiseptic, kind of sweet, Disney-like, Pixar-like things. <coughs> when infants play with toys, they can be violent, they can smash, they can merge, they can rip, they can... It's a realm where the infant can act out all of its, both uh, its sensual and its aggressive needs onto an object, it can play. And play is not something that looks always pretty. 
it's not like a sweet movie. It's actually something that is more like, it's, it's less like Disney. It's more like, I don't know if you've ever seen Louis Bunuel films or, you know, uh, da, early Dolly Bunuel or uh, Punch and Judy, the puppets where they're just slamming each other over the heads. Jean Cocteau films, Man Ray, the Dadaists, the Surrealists, the sort of really aggressive. It's uh, it's and this, the the when children play, there's no clean narrative to it. It's not like our the narratives that we like in in as adults, where we get lost in the story. It's actually one puppet or one toy and another toy and they can hit and then kiss and then the toys can get married then they'll like have a fight then they'll chase each other around there's no sense to it but the child can play out all of its anxieties all of its fantasies and it feels in control and it can work through all of the relational issues that it worries about and all of the imaginary experiences that it needs to experience or the imaginary content that it needs to experience outside of itself. It can do it with, with, with dolls and toys and with other children. So in this realm, we're allowed to project, but at the same time, there's an element of other people being there. There's the parent that's part of the play or the other kids or there's the toy. So the child has, again, this this bridge between its inner world and the outside world, a safe realm in between. It's kind of interesting if you think that in our earliest experience after the connection with our mother or our caretakers, the first realm that we felt safe wasn't in our bodies and wasn't in the world of other people, but in this magical play realm somewhere in between a transitional space. What happens is we socialize more, we go to schools, other kids in our interactions make fun and ridicule and shame and reject and essentially punish us for acting out these fantasies. And slowly over time, the playfulness of children gets replaced with a dependence upon external distractions, when we feel the need to escape from our feelings and the demands of the world and all the social implications and all the rules we have to learn and all the scary experiences out there, when we look for an escape where we once turn to our toys and our playful imaginations, now, of course, we turn on televisions, go to our iPads, turn on Facebook, whatever. So uh, we essentially go from some playfulness that we're creating to a mediated experience created entirely by somebody else that has no deep emotional resonance. It's not releasing anything for us. It's simply a distraction. It's not allowing our Im imagination to flow. As adults, with the real world beckoning and the need to become, to become self-supporting to an extent, to look good to other people, to meet all the demands of socializing, we begin to fetishize 
what we call the objective world, the world of reality. And we really believe that there's this external world of objects that if we could just get rid of all of our feelings and just cleanly see, we could function really well. And it creates this aversion towards our own emotions, fantasies, our dreams, our, uh, the stuff that we haven't worked through. And it creates this almost uh, rigid demand that we live in a, uh, this objective reality that we believe is um, the sole real world. Now, number one, that's a complete fallacy. The human brain does not represent the world in any way accurately. Your brain right now, your thalamus, as I'm talking, is pumping out seven times the information than it's actually taking in from your eyes. You know what those seven times are? They're your imagination. You're creating this room, this experience by projecting a lot of expectations. But if you look really closely at areas in the room you haven't been actually paying attention to, you'll find that it looks very different in many ways from what you assumed. We're all living in simulacrums that, as one neuropsychologist said, are just close enough to the real thing that we don't bump into the furniture. <laughs> That's about it. We're living in virtual realities that our minds create. And this is why in all of the perceptual clinical studies, when they show people, um, they'll have people in a situation where they create an astonishing event, and then they have people report what they see, everybody reports different things. Nobody experiences the same thing. None of you right now, given your past your childhoods, all of the experiences of your life, whether you've been traumatically abandoned or not, whether you've had traumas, whether you've, what kind of attachment styles you have, the entire story of your life is deeply etching itself into what you experience. And there is no real here. There's just about 60 of us having different experiences. So the idea that we have to somehow get to this real where we live in a completely compliant state, where we have to abandon the imaginative, the fantastical, the, the dreamlike qualities that we're all capable, is not one, it's needless, and two, if we were capable of doing it, it would lead to totally desiccated, meaningless lives. Because it is our imagination, it is our fantasies, our creativity, it is our ability to have emotional experience and content that gives life its deep meaning and significance. The obsession with trying to just be in the objective world is uh, a neurotic, fear that if we let out our emotions and our feelings and our imagination and our creative spirit and we play in life and we get vulnerable, that we'll be rejected, that people won't like it. It's just anxiety. I've found that 
in Buddhist practice that simply talks about meditation in terms of observing, but not creating experience, limits meditation and it creates practitioners who are really, really, okay, now I got to do this. Oh, it's just like doing my taxes. I got to sit there. I got to, I got to watch my breath now for 15 minutes. Then I got to watch my feelings. Then I got to watch my thoughts. Okay. Boy, this is fun. It's miserable. It's completely miserable. Some of the best meditations I've ever had were when a dreamlike, almost lucid dreaming state at times mingled with, just like the early transitional state with, where the child plays with the toys, and it's seeing the toys, but it's also projecting magical qualities onto the toys. When I've been on long retreats and you go out and you have this magical thing with nature where it suddenly has this vibrance and this, this um, hallucinatory, almost dreamlike otherness to it. And that creates some of the most wondrous and peaceful and safe and serene moments. And that's what the Buddha said is the point of his teaching. The Buddha actually said that the goal of all of my teaching is to end suffering. He never said it's to bring people closer to reality. And in fact, he starts out the Dhammapada by saying, the mind creates everything. We do not experience anything that has been not filtered by the mind. So he's acknowledging at the very forefront of his teaching that everything we experience is subjective. We're never outside of a mind. So to have a healthy adult life means not only being able to live in the world of other people and understand our obligations and responsibilities and to not cause harm where we can, but it also means to use and seize those opportunities to play where we can exercise our creativity, our imagination, our spiritual playfulness. This is why Winnicott, the great probably the, the 20th century's greatest psychologist, said, in adult life, reality acceptance is never completed and no human being is free from the strain of relating their inner and outer realities. In other words, the inner realm of feelings and emotions that nobody else can see and the outer reality out there where there are other people with their demands and our responsibilities and where we're totally out of we don't control anybody else's actions. The relief from this strain, Winnicott concludes, is provided by returning to an intermediate area of experience, such as in the arts and in spiritual endeavor. This intermediate area is a direct continuity with the play areas of the small child. So we're reconnecting with that time in life when we needed something to bridge our feelings, our anxieties with the often inscrutable and impossible to understand world around us. That is the realm of the creative and the playful. If we're to have a spiritual practice that is truly empowering, 
what we want is to feel permitted to really lean into the times when we go with what the mind creates. We don't steer it. We don't judge it. We don't demand that it be compliant, where we allow the right hemisphere, the emotional mind, the associative mind, to just have its dreamlike qualities. And there's no better place to experience it than in our meditation, to return to that realm where we get to be the queens and kings of our own domain. Towards exercising one's imagination, one's creativity. It's called the Kula Sunyata. It's from Middle Link Discourses, number 121. And uh, a couple of, before we start, a couple of things. What's the difference between the creative mind and the wandering mind? The wandering mind is essentially synonymous with speculation about self. What's going to happen to me in the future? What do other people think about me? Who am I really? Why did I wind up this way? How do I compare with other people? In other words, it's the, the fears about fitting in in the world, playing out in a speculative way in the mind. And it activates a very particular part of the mind, the ventral medial Broca and Wernicke's region of the brain. So there's circuits that in default mode processing, when we're bored, we go into. And it's very easy to go into self-centered fear. What do other people think about me? What's going to happen if I run out of money? What will become of me? Why isn't this relationship working out? Etc., etc., etc. The creative mind doesn't focus around self. It creates spiraling images that don't settle. It has weird words and stuff that comes in. It's much more, it's not in any way a working through of an anxiety. It's generally driven by visualizations, as in Tibetan Buddhism as well, a visualization and then they let go of the demand that you visualize a, a castle filled with gems. But it's not, it's not a sort of dire, catastrophizing tale of you in the center being homeless or it's not a narrative story about worst case scenarios involving you. In fact, there's no you in it. It's, it's not a literal, it doesn't have the narrative function of catastrophizing thoughts. It's the images change and shift. They're much more, in a way, hallucinogenic. It doesn't come up naturally when we're bored. When we're bored, what will naturally come up is default mode and self-mind-wandering, which is always about self and what's going to happen to me and what other people think about me. To get to the creative mind, you actually have to conjure it. It doesn't just arise. Nobody goes into free-flowing. They have to conjure it. They have to give themselves permission. Uh, They have to set aside a time for it and actively work in developing that, that state. We're going to start this meditation with our eyes open, so just sit really comfortably. And the practice is going to be, we're going to remove our awareness from the world of objects where we're going to start. And we're going to move awareness into the entire internal imaginary realm. And in this meditation, the Buddha directly asks that we allow our, non, our non-compliant, literal, rigid, realistic minds to step aside and go with the flow. The Buddha didn't use that term, I am. Um, for this 
meditation, I'm your spiritual hippie guide. <laughs> so go with the flow. Don't try to steer. Uh, don't try to understand what anything means. Just see if you can allow any images, any feelings to arise. Don't, don't try to direct it in any direction. And try to stay with the images as long as they're available. I'm going to give a, some directions throughout from this meditation that the Buddha speaks of, but I'd like to suggest that you don't worry about getting it right. You cannot do this right. You cannot do it wrong. They're just abstract, as you'll understand, as you'll soon find out, abstract guidances, and don't be literal about it. Just hear the words and just allow whatever the words uh, inspire and just try to keep the instructions in mind. All right, so everybody take their tabs of acid. <laughs> Relax. Let's just lift the shoulders up to the ears and then drop them. Pull the belly in tight and then release and then uh, squeeze any muscles you like tight, and then breathe out, and just relax. So soften the eyes and just allow them to stare straight ahead, and just take in the world as it presents itself before you, the world of people, the world of objects, the lights, the fans, the table, the windows, the room, everything that's man-made, or woman-made, or human-made, whatever the gender-free version is, and, uh, and just take in the entirety of the experience. This is what the Buddha called contemplation of the world.
So let's close the eyes. And the second contemplation is to bring to mind any images of the natural world. So dropping all of the images that we saw from the world around us and just allowing the mind to create any images that are recollections based on what the natural world around us might be like. So you might visualize trees or forests or lakes or rivers or oceans. You might see animals or vegetation. Just allow the mind to create, this is called contemplation of the forest, So the next contemplation is the contemplation of the earth, which means dropping any images that arise of the natural world and instead just 
feel into the connection that you're making with the ground and begin to contemplate that we're on this earth, this planet, all together, this solid object that is moving through space, and just allowing the mind to conjure up anything that comes to mind when you think of earth. So at this point, we're going to move into the more challenging of the contemplations. The first three of the world and of the natural earth and then just the earth itself are asking us to visualize things that we already have some uh, or imagine or to recollect objects that we have some familiarity with. but now we're moving into the realm where the Buddha is actively encouraging us to be less literal. So this 
first of the formless recollections is called contemplating space, which means removing the earth and everything you are familiar with from your mind and just contemplating the limitlessness of space that goes out in all directions. And in this, it's worthwhile to even begin to experiment with what in spiritual practice is called some of the non-dual practices, removing the sense of inside me and outside, the sense that I have experiences that are inside of my body and then outside what everybody else can see, internal and external, me and not me. And instead, just experience everything is happening in the mind with no inside or out. Removing the sense of where you begin and end, your outline of your body. And just allow the mind to expand as much as it can to greet that idea of spaciousness. And whatever arises when you contemplate space, just let it. Just keep on asking, what is space? What is limitless space? And just allow your mind to begin to play.
So for the second to last contemplation, just drop the obligation to visualize or recollect or contemplate space. And now just allow the mind to observe consciousness itself. Now how do we do that? In the Buddha's instructions, we watch the mind constantly trying to land on different objects, constantly trying to collapse onto things and people and memories, and each time just allow it to release and just note itself, note what the mind could experience if it doesn't think about any things. You could just have very simple words that you repeat, open, spacious. Note how the mind wants to contract, how it wants to sometimes have energy and sometimes it becomes dull and sleepy. A very simple set of words to remind the mind to just stay open and spacious and aware, letting everything go. And then in that, allow whatever arises to occur.
And so finally, the Buddha has a couple of intermediary contemplations, but it winds up with a final directive of being completely released of any theme or any directive, just allowing the mind to operate on its own and just go with it. Don't add any thought. Don't add any try to figure out what it means. Just allow the creative, fully inventive part of your mind to speak without any fear of editing or figuring out or being literal. Going into, leaning into this realm of freedom and play without any clinging or aversion, without pushing away or wanting anything to last, without adding any thought, just allowing the mind to spontaneously create.
So very gradually, just bring back into the mind the sounds of the world around you, the feeling of contact with the chair or cushion, clothes in your body, while keeping the eyes closed, recollecting the room, allowing the mind to begin that process of creating what we believe is the external reality that we live in, but is actually just the creation, another creation of the mind. And when you hear the sound of the bowl, just very, very slowly take the entire length of the sound, opening the eyes by looking at the ground and integrating actual sight into your experience so that it doesn't dominate. 